Okay. Cool, cool guys. It's so good to be here again. Um, we should start off. I just really want to quickly pray. I know we just prayed, but I want to pray um, as well. So let's just begin with prayer. Dear God, thank you so much for today. Lord, I ask that you would speak through me um, and that what we learned today would really help us uh, to interpret your word, that we would not be restricted, Lord, but that this would simply give us a place to start. Uh, yeah, thank you so much, Lord, for this, and we just ask for humility as we go through your word now. You know, we pray. Okay. <laughs> okay. Once upon a time, in a very far-off country, there lived a merchant who had been so fortunate in all his undertakings that he was enormously rich. What kind of story do you think that guy says? Or do you think that guy? What kind of story do you guys think that is? Fairy tale. Very good. Once upon a time. Keywords. Once upon a time. Okay. The United States reopens its land and air borders Monday to foreign visitors, fully vaccinated against COVID-19, ending 20 months of restrictions on travel from around the globe that separated families, hobbled tourism, and strained diplomatic ties. News. Mm-hmm. Very simple. Um, I'll let you guys know this is this next one is from the book Pilgrim's Progress. This is it says this hill, though high, I covet to ascend or I want to ascend. The difficulty will not me offend, for I perceive the way to life lies here. Come pluck up heart. Let's neither faint nor fear. Better, though difficult, the right way to go than wrong, though easy, where the end is well. My favorite quotes from Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress is a, it's an allegorical book where all these details have, have significant meaning and names have meaning and places have meaning. Um, I just wanted to start quickly with those three different types of literary works to stress the point that genre actually, genre matters when we're trying to interpret the Bible. And a lot of times we come into the Word of God and we forget that there's like a ton of different types of genres in in the word and we try to read it all like we read the book of romans uh where like we, we think every single author is trying to build an argument for something he's trying to prove something and while every single passage of scripture is super important not every single passage of scripture explains itself in the exact same way um so today what i wanted to do is i wanted to or we will talk uh about narratives. Uh, narratives is a specific type of genre in the Bible. It's the biggest uh, genre that's in the Bible, actually. So it's one of the most read parts of the Bible. Um, it covers more than the law, more than the prophets. Uh, narrative is a huge portion of the Bible. So I thought we could start there. Um, and specifically the dramas. And so the stories where there's a, there's a hero, there's a climax, there's a resolution. Um, these are the stories that we read I think sometimes we it's difficult to know exactly what the main point is and, and what we do with the story. Like there's a lot going on, but what do we exactly do with this story? And so what I wanted to do today um, <clears throat> is we're going to go over this this kind of arc, I guess you could call it. There's six points for navigating our way through a, through a drama, through a narrative, um, and 
it's actually from a book that I read, just so you guys know. These are not my original thoughts, at least the main points. I have my original thoughts under them. Um, but the six main points of going through the narratives are from a book that I read called Getting the Message from Daniel Doriani. Super good. I would highly recommend that. Um, he goes through every kind of literature in the Bible and explains how to interpret it. It's amazing. Anyways, I thought it was so good. Um, and so I wanted to bring it to you guys. Um, so there are three different kinds of narratives. Uh, we're only going to be talking about <coughs> the one which is uh, dramas, like I said. And so to begin, uh, and if you guys want to take notes, the first, the first thing that we see in any narrative uh, or any story in the Bible uh, is usually it introduces us to a setting. And so a setting would be the very first point. I tried to print out notes today, by the way. Um, for some reason, I was not able to. Uh, so I will be telling you guys what number the, the main points are instead of having them on paper for you. What? Yes, Daniel Doriani. Daniel Doriani. D O R I O R I A N I. <laughs> this is hermeneutics class, not English class. I don't need to talk about. <laughs> okay, uh, but no. But the reason why I wanted to start with those genres is when we hear a genre outside of the Bible, typically our mind automatically starts to think in, in a certain way. Mary, you immediately knew that what I was saying was a fairy tale because it started once upon a time. Based off that single sentence, um, at least in the English language, we know that the story is going to be fictional. It's probably going to have talking animals. It's probably going to have, there's going to be a main hero or a couple main heroes. There's going to be some conflict and they're going to get away and there's going to be a nice moral uh moral point at the end of the story. That's usually how fairy tales work. Um, in, the, in, the, in the European tales, they're a little bit more graphic than the, than the American ones. Uh, I was reading Strumfalpita the other day, and this cut off his thumb. I was like, are you kidding me right now? It was weird. Uh, what is it? Strumfalpita, uh, yeah. I don't know. Paula has a book, and they just cut off his thumb. Right in this kid's book. It's crazy. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> thought that was thought that was really interesting. Um, oh yeah. Anyways, uh, so the reason I wanted to start with that is to simply show that the reason that we and we can cut that out. It's easy to cut stuff out. The reason why we uh, why I started with that is. When we hear different genres, our mind starts to think in a certain way. In a fairy tale, we're not necessarily looking for every tiny little detail. We know it's going to be a story. And so things kind of push us toward the climax. In the news, we're kind of hanging on to the details because we know that every little bit is there for a reason. It's trying to make it short and concise. You know, and so we're, we're listening to it because every, every part has a meaning. In allegory, we're doing the same thing, but a little bit different. We're listening to the details, like in Pilgrim's Progress, but we know that these details actually mean something else, that they, they're, they're, they're symbols of something greater. And all of these genres, and many more, are in the Bible. But I don't, it's, it's difficult for us sometimes to switch our mind into, those, into that type of reading. Um, and so like I said, today we're going to talk about narratives because it is the most talked about, uh, or it's the most biggest genre in the Bible. So, starting with number one is the setting. 
Uh, we're going to learn about this six-point arc first, and then we're going to go through 1 Kings 18 and just see how it works. So um, with setting, what I mean by that is there's three different components to setting. And so there are there's the time, the physical place, and the social setting. So there's the time, like the, is it day or is it night? Is it winter? Is it summer? Uh, is it, uh, where is it physically? So the physical place, is it in the field? Is it in the city? Uh, and then the social setting, is it in the synagogue? Is it crowded? Is it religious people, non-religious people? What's the social setting um, for these narratives? And so that can sound kind of like subpar, like, well, okay, why does that actually matter? But there are quite a few stories where the, the physical setting or the, the, the time setting actually does have an effect on the story. Like John 3, for example, we see Nicodemus, and it specifically takes the time to point out that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. It says he was uh, a leader of the Pharisees or a member of the Pharisees, a leader of the law, it says, and he came to Jesus by night. And that tells us that, okay, there's a reason the author included this detail. So it shows he, he was a little bit scared, most likely, to come to Jesus during the daytime and be seen by his contemporaries. And so, but he still wanted to ask Jesus questions. And so he came and he secretly came to Jesus by night. And that's in the passage where we have the famous John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gives only begotten son. Um, and then the physical place as well also gives us kind of insight to certain stories. So in, in 1 Kings 18, the, the chapter we're going to be going through after we kind of go once through the, the arc, um, we see that Elijah actually, if you look up the places, after Elijah goes and runs, and you'll know what I'm talking about once we go there in just a few minutes, Elijah actually runs 30 kilometers. He's so terrified after, after Jezebel finds out what he did to all of her prophets. He ran, it says 18 miles, like it was about 30 kilometers. He ran about 30 kilometers, and then he was just done. And so we kind of understand a little bit more why he's, like, exhausted. He's like, God, I'm, I'm just done. Like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want anything right now. And then God feeds him, gives him a nap, and says, you're all, all right. Um, so the first one is the setting. We have the time, the physical place, and the social setting. And then in a story, in any drama, there is a main character or a few main characters. And so then we're introduced to the main characters. And if God or Jesus is not a main character, it's really important to remember this. If God or Jesus is not a main character, we have to remember that he's always a background character. And when I say that, I don't mean secondary in value or worth, obviously. But God is always, always, if not at the forefront, in the background. Because every single story in the Bible is directly related to God. There isn't a single story that happens in the Bible that, that is apart from God if that makes sense. Everything finds its way back to God and ultimately in Jesus Christ. So for the characters, it's really, it's fun to compare the characters. So in lots of narratives, we have three different types of people. We have believers, we have unbelievers, and we have kind of people on the fence. They're not quite sure what to do. Not every single story has this, of course, but it's really interesting to see the story from their perspective, um, and it kind of helps us to understand a little bit more why certain things take place. And we'll go and we'll see that soon as well. Um, and for the main character, here's a question you can ask, <coughs> is how does your image of the main character change from the beginning of the story 
to the end of the story. So when we're introduced to the character, how, what kind of light is he put in? And, and does he change for the better or does he change for the worse? And so are, are we able to like put more confidence in this person? Be like, wow, this person's really a man of God. Or are we like, well, he could use some work. It's not exactly a, a role model per se. So with the characters, see if he gets better or worse. Um, and obviously dialogue as well. We focus on the dialogue because that drives the story forward. And so there's lots of things happening. There's lots of action. Um, but dialogue is oftentimes where we see where the main point is at. Um, and just because, this is interesting, speaking of, speaking of actions, just because something is recorded in the Bible doesn't mean that it's endorsed by the Bible. So just because, just, it's true, just because something is put down, like we, last week we read about Jephthah and how he sacrificed his daughter. The Bible never says whether that was okay or not, actually. The Bible never comments on it. It's just left up to the, to the judgment of the reader, which hopefully we all would agree that's pretty bad. Um, but just because something is recorded doesn't mean it's an example to follow. And so that's kind of left up to the job of the reader to, to um, decide and, and decipher, okay, is this somebody uh, who I should learn from? Or is this action something that was good? And, and to do that, we can compare it with the rest of Scripture to see if it lines up with what the rest of Scripture says. Um, <clears throat> okay, so, uh, and, and really quickly as well, um, last week we went through, uh, I wanted to say this at the beginning, I apologize, um, last week we went through a ton of stuff. Uh, we went through like five huge points, and there was a ton of information, so this week what I want to do is I want to focus just on one, one aspect of interpreting the Bible. Uh, just a quick recap, last week we started out with the two prerequisites to interpreting the Bible, which is pray. If you, if you want to get into the Word of God and you really want to get down to interpreting it, the first thing we have to do is pray. And the second is to remember that Jesus is in all the Scripture. And so that was like the first two things that, you, that are before you even open up the Bible to remember to pray and that Christ is in all the Scripture. Uh, and then we looked at how context, both in the immediate form and in the form of the whole Bible is super important, uh, and, and also the, the intent of the original author. Um, so using those things, uh, we're coming into this week using those things, um, and so we're going to play off last week's lesson a little bit and, and see what we can do with First Kings 18. So the first one is settings, the second one is characters, and the third one is the conflict. Then we're introduced, like we have the setting, we know where the person's at, we know who the person is, and then all of a sudden there's a problem. And we're like, okay, we don't, problems can vary, it can be a decision they have to make. Um, actually, most conflicts can be summed up in, in three different um, words. It could be a test, it could be a quest, or it could be a choice. Usually every single problem is either one or two or even three of those uh, those things. So, for example, the, the narrative of Jesus when he's in the wilderness, that would be a test of, of the devil testing Jesus to see if he's going to worship the devil for immediate gratification or if he's going to uh, not and wait for his kingdom in the future. And uh, <clears throat> for the quest, uh, the quest is something that the main character is after. It's something that he he's trying to attain like Abraham was after God's blessings and promises, almost every single story in Genesis about Abraham 
is written down to show that the conflict arises when God's promise to him and, and, and Abraham's covenant is threatened. And so we see that the conflict that is his quest is being hindered, his quest to fulfill God's commands and to, to bring about this nation of Israel that God said was going to be uh, through Abraham. Every story we have about Abraham is simply written down to show us uh, that God is faithful and that he's going to stay true to his promise. Because there were so many problems that came up, so many things that tried to hinder this promise from happening. And they're recorded, in the, like, like, for example, the, uh, when Abraham lied to Pharaoh. It's not just a story about how Abraham's kind of a dirtball for lying. It's a story because it, it, the, the covenant was being threatened. He was going to die. The, the king of Egypt was probably going to kill him so he could marry Sarah. And instead, Abraham lied, which wasn't okay, but he lied. And, uh, and in doing so, <clears throat> he didn't get killed. And the covenant of God was still able to, um, to exist through him. Or the, the story of Abraham and Isaac. In this instance, God's, in this instance, God tells him, hey, go offer up your only son. The son who I promised all of these blessings are going to come through. Go kill him. And that's really a big problem. You know, if you're expecting that all of God's promises are going to come through this one person, and then it's like, well, go sacrifice him. Then it's, that's a really big problem, and that's threatening the covenantal relationship. And so that's why the story is included. Um, and there's so many things we can take from the story. But in the big picture of the Bible, that's why, yeah, that's why it's in there. <clears throat> and then the last one, so there's the test, the quest, and a choice. And so in choices, we see that the main character obviously has to decide something. Um, like when David is in the cave and he Saul is uh, relieving himself, and David's like, hmm, I could kill him right now. And this would solve all my problems. And, but instead, David says, no, I know that Saul is the, law, the Lord's anointed. So he cut off a piece of his cape um, in order to show Saul, hey, I could have killed you, but I didn't. So be thankful, you know, and just to show that he was honoring God. Um, so that was a, a decision that David had to make. Um, and then the fourth one. So we have the setting, the character, the conflict where a problem comes up. And then the fourth one is the, the crisis or the climax. So this is where everything kind of comes to a peak and I think for us, as as um, for most of us, I should say, sorry, if we've read the Bible for too long, not like it's a bad thing. If we've read the Bible for um, not too long, <laughs> it's a terrible, terrible wording. If we've read the Bible for a long time, <clears throat> a lot of these stories kind of lose their shock value. You know, a, a lot of these stories, we know what's going to happen with the story of David and Goliath. We know what's going to happen with the story of uh, in the in this parables of Jesus or, or in Jesus's life, we know how it ends. But we need to put ourselves back into like the first time reading this and, and, and to come to the climax. The first time readers, this is the climax of a story is where somebody who's never read the story, like, like sit up from reading and they're like, oh, my word, like, what's going to happen right now? Like, how is this how is this main character going to get out of this? Or how is this going to resolve? How is God going to intervene? And the climax is when you're kind of with that question of, Okay, what's going to happen next? Because I got to know. <laughs> I can't just close the book right now. Um, and so it, it can actually be pretty beneficial to get the, the value of the story to pretend like you don't know what's happening next. And I know that's hard to do. <laughs> it's pretty theoretical, um, but it is, it is a good practice. And then number five, after crisis or climax, number five is the resolution. 
And in the resolution, the main point is usually found. Um, again, this is usually. So in every single structure, in, in every system of interpretation, it can never be exact. There's, there isn't one thing to rule them all, uh, one system to rule them all. Um, there's always going to be exceptions, but in general, the resolution is where the main point is found for the, for the drama. And so some, some of these phases overlap. Sometimes the characters and the setting, the character comes first, the setting comes way later. They sometimes overlap. Um, but once we see the climax and then shortly after the climax, maybe even the next verse, we usually see there's like a, either an authorial comment stating why something happened or somebody says something. Um, and, uh, and it helps us to understand what the main theme is or maybe a few of the main points. Um, and then the last one is the following action. And again, this is a kind of, it's similar to resolution where it can be a saying or an action or an interaction uh, that interprets what just happened. And so this is, this is more so where the theme is really restated, um, especially in the gospels. And, and it's sometimes restated, um, actually a lot in the gospels. It's restated at the beginning of the next chapter. You'll see that where something happens and then you see at the very beginning of the next chapter um, that that same theme is kind of repeated. Uh, <clears throat> so that is the six steps, I guess you could say, um, for going through a biblical narrative. I know it seems kind of, uh, it seems interesting right now without having a passage in front of us. So let's open up to 1 Kings 18. I just wanted this to get just really briefly familiar with that. Um, and I just want to show you guys how this kind of works in practice. First uh, Kings 18, and we're not going to read it verse by verse. We're going to be going through 18 and 19. And I guess with. Uh... OK, <clears throat> so First Kings 18 is the story. Um, some of us are maybe familiar with it already, some maybe not. But it's a story of Elijah uh, meeting with the prophets of Jezebel on Mount Carmel, uh, and it's this showdown between the, the soul, the, the, the one prophet of God, and the 450 or 850 uh, prophets of Baal. And it's that really amazing showdown, actually, uh, of just God showing his power, showing that he is the one true God. And so we're introduced to Elijah. Um, actually, it's uh, chapter 17. I'm sorry. We're introduced to Elijah in chapter 17. The reason why we're not starting there is because I'm just going to quickly paraphrase that. Elijah in chapter 17 predicts a drought, which is where chapter 18 starts. Uh, he predicts a drought, and we're introduced to this character. Um, and, and we see for uh, for the first time, we don't quite know who he is. And we don't know if we can trust him. We don't know if he's really a man of God. And in the in the context of the book, First Kings started off with David, his the end of his reign, and then Solomon starting. And, and things. This is like the golden age of Israel. Like finally, Israel got what they wanted. They finally got a king. They had a good king. David made some mistakes, but he was honoring God. And 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 so there was this like expectation of Israel longing for political and military. Uh, unity, and and then finally they have this person who loves Jesus or who loves God, and then 
Solomon comes, and he's also amazing, but then at the end of his life, he kind of goes a little crazy. He's got like a thousand wives and concubines, and it says that they lead him astray from God, and he uh, starts building idols to, to other gods. And so then we're like, oh, okay, well, that's not really good, but maybe there's hope in the future. And then we read the rest, and coming up to 1 Kings 17, there's like a couple ups, but mostly downs. And it's mostly just, and then this king did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then this king, it literally says um, in actually what it says, yeah, in, in verse 31 of 1 Kings 16, it says, it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, uh, that he married Jezebel, the son or the daughter of Ethbel, the king of, you know, whatever, all these crazy names, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. Basically, the, the Bible's like, as if it wasn't enough that he was sinning, he like doubly sinned and married this terrible prophetess who was serving uh, a false god. You know, and so it's just showing the the total downfall of Israel. That Israel was like, we need a king. This is where our hope is at. This is this is finally going to be where our fulfillment is going to be. We'll be able to worship God. Everything's going to be great. And they get a king. They get another king, and then it just goes downhill. Um, and so, and then all of a sudden, we have this narrative. That comes in out of almost out of nowhere. First Kings 16 is like a big summary of all of the kings um, and a summary just telling us that Israel is basically totally uh, lost in idolatry. And then out of nowhere, this passage comes up right? and we're going to figure out why. Um, but 17 introduces us to Elijah. And at the end of chapter 17, after he does a few miracles, he, he raises a widow's son from the dead. He uh, through God's power, he is making food from nothing, basically. And, and at the very end of the chapter, which we would say is the resolution, um, it says, Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Amen. And so we're introduced to this person. But we see not only by his word, but also by his deed and by the mouth of other people that he's trusted, that he, he loves God. And so this, this is almost like character development, chapter 17, where, I mean, it's many applications and, and, and truths can be found in there as well. But for the simple sake of storytelling, we can, we can say it's also character development, where we see, oh, this is somebody who is really a man of God. And then it starts this story in chapter 18 um, of... Ahab calling Obadiah and saying, hey, we're out of food. There's a huge famine. Can, why don't I go this way? You go this way. And let's see who can find grass. Otherwise, we're going to have to start killing all the cattle. We really don't want to do that. So Obadiah goes. And on his way, Obadiah sees Elijah. Elijah has been kind of on the run from Ahab because uh, Elijah mentions three times that he is the, the only prophet left who actually serves God. Uh, and so Elijah says, hey, uh, Obadiah, go tell King Ahab that I want to meet with him. And Obadiah kind of freaks out a little bit because he, think he thinks he's going to die. And then Elijah says, no, don't worry. God's going to protect you. And he asks, he asks Ahab to gather all of Israel at Mount Carmel, along with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So all false prophets. Just 850 people in total versus... One guy. Um, and I would say the key verse in this passage is verse 21, where it says, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long 
will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. And, and that kind of sets the stage for why this is happening. Elijah calls everybody, he calls all of Israel to Mount Carmel. And he says, hey, you guys are serving two gods. You have to decide. You can't do both of these things. And so choose one. Um, so for the setting of this story, we see uh, that it starts off on uh, kind of like a dirt path in the wilderness with Obadiah meeting Elijah, looking for grass. And then the story uh, finalizes on Mount Carmel. And it's interesting mountains, uh, if we're getting into typology or symbology, mountains are oftentimes associated with holiness. They're oftentimes associated with God doing incredible works. The transfiguration of Jesus, uh, Mount Carmel and Mount Sinai. Uh, mountains are often associated with, with really amazing acts of God. Um, and so then we're introduced to the characters and we look and we see, again, like we said in, in chapter 17, we're introduced to Elijah. And we see that he is a believer, that he's somebody to be trusted. And we see the people kind of on the fence, who is Israel, the people who they're not quite believers. They're not quite unbelievers. Um, I mean, yeah, that's not theologically correct, but you know what I mean? <laughs> they're a little bit on the fence of whether or not they should trust God or not. Um, and then we have the people who are very much against God, who are the false prophets. Um, and then the conflict. The conflict comes in. It starts with verse 21 in chapter 18, which is the verse we just read. Um, where Elijah kind of confronts Israel and he says, hey, you guys have to choose. And all of a sudden the problem arises because now we're left with something that is unsatisfying. We're not left with an answer yet. And so a problem arises and Elijah says, hey, how about this? I'll make it easy on you guys. You 850 prophets, select a calf of your choice and kill it, put it on wood. Don't like the wood, but put it on wood and call to your God, and if he calls on fire from heaven and burns up the sacrifice, then we'll know that your God is true. And they say, whoever, actually he says, whoever, who, who, um, if your God does that, we'll know that he's true. But if the Lord, he doesn't say a God, he says, but if the Lord does this for me, then we'll know that God is true. And we see that God answers Elijah. He even, Elijah, three times he pours water on the wood to make sure it's like soaking wet. And then we see God calls down this massive fireball and, and lights the sacrifice. And the other prophets were stuck just, they were they, they even resorted, they were cutting themselves. They were screaming out to their God, crying out for their God to, to send down fire from heaven. And obviously he didn't listen. Elijah makes fun of him. Um, and then God answers and it says that all of Israel fell to their face and they saw that God is truly Yahweh. And so the conflict comes with the with the problems um, of, of Israel not not quite desiring God or even wanting to follow God but being stuck in two opinions, and then the climax is the prophets stop Elijah or the prophets stop and, and Elijah's up, and this is this is the point of the story when Elijah comes up to the step where everyone's like, okay, these prophets couldn't do it, what is God going to do now? And the first time reader is like, oh, man, like what's going to happen? <laughs> you know? Like, is God going to answer him? Is he not going to answer him? Um, and we see, of course, that God does. And, and he calls down fire from heaven and burns it up. And then the resolution, and this is where things get really interesting. And we're going to start tying it back to last week. The resolution on the small scale 
uh, what I mean by that is the resolution that's found within these two specific chapters is verses um, 36 through 39 in chapter 18. So 1 Kings 18, this is where we find our, our crisis or our climax and our resolution. Sometimes they overlap. And it says, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Israel said to them, Seize the prophets, don't let any of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. So there's our resolution, and we kind of see we see the main point uh, of of the in, in the resolution or the theme is that the Lord is God, and we get this this amazing uh, show from from God that there are no other gods like Him. That there are there's no not only are there no gods, there are no gods like Him. Um, there's nothing that is comparable to Him. And he is not going to share his his um, his honor. He's not going to share his 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 praiseworthiness with anybody. He's a very jealous God. And then, with the following action, and this is where uh, this is this is where we would say is the big scale. Where last week we talked about how the immediate context is very important, but then also we have this other context of the whole Bible and how this passage fits into the entire Bible. And so then we have like the, like the big picture idea of what's happening and we see in verse nine or in chapter 19 elijah runs uh 30 kilometers because jezebel the evil prophetess was like hey you killed 450 men of my men i'm not super happy about that so now i'm going to kill you and elijah's like okay peace and he just runs and he runs for 30 kilometers and he's super tired he finds a cave and he just like collapses god sends an angel to give him food and to give him drink uh, and then for the second and the third time, Elijah cries out to God and he says, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant. Okay, that's the, that's a big problem. Okay, in, in the narrative of scripture, they've forsaken the covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And then later in verse 14, he says, I have been, again, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left. And they seek to, and they seek my life to take it away. And, uh, this is a story where the, the fire comes, the strong wind comes, um, and the earthquake comes. And God's voice is not in any of those three massive supernatural events or um, um, not supernatural, but those massive natural events. God's voice is not in them. God's voice is in the whisper. Elijah hears this really silent, this really quiet wind. and He goes outside the cave and he, and he listens. And God's voice is in this really quiet whisper. 
and he says, go return on your way. Oh, no, I'm so sorry. Wrong one. Yes. Go, no, that was right. I'm so sorry. Go return on your way to the, to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you've arrived, you shall anoint Hazel king over Aram and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of, oh man, I should have practiced these words. Uh, Abamehelo, you shall, I was totally wrong. You shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel, Jehu, shall, shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. And then he leaves and he finds Elisha, who is his successor. It's really easy to read that and kind of skip over that. Okay, we love the, we love the symbology and the, the God whispering in the wind thing instead of these huge forces. It's really cool, and that is. We can take a lot from that, actually. But it's really easy to skip over what God actually says, which when God speaks... It's extremely important. Elijah has been constantly crying out this whole time, your covenant is in danger, Lord. I alone am left. I'm the only one who's serving you. All of Israel is forsaking you. Um, and, and then God says, well, actually, that's not true. Don't worry. I have 7,000 people who, are not going, who have not turned to Baal. They've not forsaken me. I have kept a remnant. And, and so we see this story is put in the book of Kings to show that amidst all of the terrible kings, okay, that all these people who Israel originally was putting their hope in, and then they ended up being super evil. This story is right in the middle of 1 Kings to show, hey, amidst all of the, all of the horrible kings and the tyranny of Israel, God is still going to keep his promise. And because it's kind of just randomly thrown in this book, and you've got to ask, okay, what's going on? And then you see it in, in the light of the Bible as a whole, and you understand that God is always fighting to protect his covenant. He's always fighting to protect his covenant with his people. And so in this story, in the whole meta narrative of First Kings and of the Bible, there's so many terrible things happening, and so many, there's so, so much hopelessness. But then we see, based on what God says to Elijah, and Elijah's kind of raising up the, a concern for the whole book here, God, what's happening here? There's so much evil around me. There's nothing good. I'm, 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 I'm alone. And God says, no, I know it looks like it, but you're not. Don't worry. Um, which is really beautiful, actually. Um, and, and so we, we can take something like this. We can take this theme of God not forsaking his covenant. And we can use this as a starting point. So this, this whole, the, the setting, character, climax, resolution, following action, of course, this isn't something we're going to use on our five-minute daily devotional reading every morning. Um, but in preparation for a study, in preparation for teaching, or for, for just deeper study as well, it's so um, helpful to use something like this, not to restrict ourselves, but to find a starting point. So we go, okay, what are the main themes of this passage? What's, like, what's happening here? What's actually going on in the text? And then on the whole on the whole level of the Bible as well. What's happening in this text? Because a lot of times we can come to the Bible, especially narratives, and we don't really know why they're there. And, and so this system um, is it's very simple. It's not without its faults, but it's here to give us a starting point to where, like we talked about last week, the, the original author's intent 
is going to dictate every application that we take from the passage. So whatever the original author meant and whatever God meant, because there's always two or three different meanings, um, whatever these, whatever the original author meant, that those are the grounds, those are the, the boundaries of how I can apply that to my life. From there, we can get the principles. Um, and of course, the, the writer of Kings is not, he doesn't know that a person named Nathan, uh, an American living in Vienna, is going to exist, and all of my very personal problems, you know, uh, he's not writing directly to me. But from the authorial intent, we can take the principles, what we called the implications last week, and then from there, we can take the personal application of, okay, this is what he's saying. This is the principle that I can take from it. How does that apply directly to my life? Um, and so, again, this story is placed here simply to show that God, I mean, all the evil, still has a plan. He's not going to let them be completely overrun for it. Um, and it's really interesting because the, the book of First Kings, um, it ends on a pretty bad note. And then the book of Second Kings, which we're hoping is going to be maybe better, is totally worse. And it ends with Israel. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. I forgot to say as well. Three chapters before, the whole kingdom divided as well. So the whole nation of Israel divided. They're, they're, the tribe of Judah became their own country, and Israel, the other 11 tribes, were their own. And so it's really hopeless. That was a big point that I totally did not write down. I thought I'd just remember, but I guess I didn't. That was a huge point. Israel divided. So there's really no hope. And in the end of Second Kings, we see that they're taken into captivity. Jerusalem is burned. It's plundered. And uh, they're taken into Babylonian captivity, during which time Jeremiah is written. Um, but it's... It's not a, it's actually, it's as, as a whole story, first and second kings, it's not a great story, but we have a couple little narratives in them. Hezekiah is another one where we see, okay, amidst all the terrible suffering, amidst all the terrible evil that Israel's doing, God is not going to forsake them. And so it's so important to look not just at the textual level, not just at the text that we have here, but also how it fits into the whole Bible and why the author put this in the story. There's always a reason why. And nothing is recorded just for the sake of being recorded because it's interesting. Everything has a very specific reason. Um, so that is what I have for today. I, I tried to go a little bit less because I know last week was a bit much. Um, and so I, what I will do, what I, what I will say, if anybody wants to try this method, I, I wrote up another one. Um, we can do Genesis 22, not right now, but if you guys wanted to do something at home and then talk to me about it next week, you can take these six steps and apply them to Genesis 22. Um, and then just to see, this is an awesome narrative. It's the story about Abraham offering up Isaac or almost offering up Isaac. Um, and it's, a, it's another great narrative to, to use this method on because you, you do start to see like with the setting. Why does it say, why does it specifically record, I won't tell all the answers right now, but why does it specifically record that Abraham set off early in the morning? Like, what does it tell you about the character? You know, that he, he didn't wait, he set off immediately the next morning, very early in the morning. What does it tell you about the character of the person? And we start to see how these aren't just six random points, but these are, it's pretty well thought through, this whole, uh, this whole system here. Genesis 22. Sorry. Yes, number five and six. Um, I'll start with number one, and I'll actually just go through. So number one is setting. So the the time, the place, and the social setting. Number two is the characters. So you're looking for the characters, who the main character is. 
um, who are the unbelievers, the on the fence or the undecided and the believers. Number three is the conflict. And number four is the climax. That's when everything comes to a head. Number five is resolution. And so in the resolution, this is right after the climax. It's how things have resolved and, and what happens immediately after the conflict. And then um, it, it runs right into number six, which is following actions, which is oftentimes uh, like an authorial note or um, or a comment or uh, something spoken by the character that kind of gives us an idea for what the main what the main theme is. So. Climax, yeah, crisis and climax. And so usually, again, it's not 100 percent, but it is pretty often, I would say most of the time that when you find the crisis right after that, you find the main point of, of why this is recorded and what's happening. Like as soon as the crisis or, or as soon as the climax happened in our story, um, which I did not order this around the story. I just chose a story at random and it worked out. <laughs> but uh, the main point of Israel being called back to God to be faithful to the government is the immediate result um, of after the conflict or after the climax. So, does anybody have any other questions? <laughs>